0: everybody. Welcome to Reproducibility. My name is Sam Parsons here in Oxford. I'm joined by Amy Auburn in Cambridge. Yeah. Hi, Amy. I don't know why I said that like a question. It's like I'd forgotten where you were. Um, we are joined by two special guests today, uh, Jade Pickering and Marta Topa. Um, Jade is at the University of Manchester and Marta is at the University of Surrey. Both are awesome because they are heavily involved in the Reproducibility Organising kind of group uh, and are leading their own stuff, um, but we're going to be talking them to them today, largely about uh, the importance of systematic reviews um, and making sure they're robust. Uh, so, welcome both. Thank you.
1: Hi. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, So I'm really curious first uh, how, so we talked on a previous episode with Jade a little bit about her experience with the Journal Club. So before we get started properly, I'm curious to hear your experience, Marta, with, um, because I I think you started the the Surrey branch, right?
2: Yes, yeah, I did. So actually we have taken a slightly different um, approach, mainly because I was worried that I would have to do everything by myself and I didn't have the capacity to so I decided to open um, a society with the Students Union, where it's um, sort of required that we have a committee, and the committee are responsible for running of the society and make sure that our activities happen regularly, etc. Um, so I have found a few other quite motivated people who are uh, new to reproducibility and open science, but equally uh, very enthusiastic, and now we share the responsibilities. and it's actually quite nice because um, when one of us gets like a very busy, busy period. We can kind of fit in for each other and we don't ever feel like things are getting out of control or we stop meeting because we can't handle it anymore. So it works quite well.
0: That's really nice. It kind of sounds like you've quite successfully leveraged like a mechanism that's already in the university to make this work, which is really yeah. Cool. Thanks.
1: Thanks. I'm quite happy with it. Yeah. I quite, I quite
3: like your society. No, no, I think it, it does really play into now that we have more and more uh, different universities joining the reproducibility kind of movement of, of journal clubs that there are, you know, it's different universities have different ways of doing things and you can leverage different types of interest or different groupings. And we're getting quite a diverse array of Uh, types of reproducibility um, journal clubs at the moment. So that's going to be really interesting to see. Um, Cool. But we're here to talk about systematic reviews. Uh, They, Uh yeah, they're, um, I guess, a systematic review is often what we feel like you kind of do half-heartedly, maybe at the beginning of your PhD, uh, maybe you don't do it as well as you should, um, I did. A, I was trying to do a systematic review and then I got called out by reviewers of a journal that I didn't follow certain guidelines. So it's, it's all a bit of a, yeah, I, I don't know. Sam, did you ever do a systematic review?
0: Uh, I was supposed to. Um, <laughs> and, then, and, then we, and then we had an idea for what was more of like a um, a theoretical piece. So then that sort of became where my effort went. I guess. Um, so you found so, something yeah, more I, I interesting failed. to
3: do than reviewing the evidence in your field?
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I'm, I'm one of those, <laughs> one of those wags.
3: Well, we, we have two um, people here to tell you that that was wrong and that i was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Marta Jade. Uh, yeah. Tell us why, why systematic reviews? It's, you know, probably not the most popular of topics to focus your work on.
1: Yeah, um, so me, both Marta and I did a well. I say did a systematic review. It has been ongoing for me for far too long now, uh, still ongoing. But I think we both we both did a systematic review, um, and we found it really difficult. And we both kind of we both kind of thought that maybe we were the problem that. We didn't really know what we were doing but it seems that other people know what they're doing and we weren't really sure if it was imposter syndrome or genuinely we just had no idea what to do or or what but we so Marta and I met in January this year at the advanced methods for reproducible science workshop at Cumberland Lodge which is where we both realized that we'd been doing systematic reviews and we both realized that we weren't confident Um, and Dorothy Bishop did a talk there on systematic reviews and it kind of came out in the Q&A that it wasn't a problem unique to us like everyone knew that systematic review is the way that you're supposed to review the literature Um, but actually doing it is it's something that I think people find really off-putting it's it is it is big piece of work to do a systematic review I would do mine completely differently if I were doing it again now um
3: what, what exactly were the the problems that you both of you had encountered um when doing your own separate systematic reviews before you met in in the beginning of this year if I can give like a nice um illustration of my
2: experience because it wasn't so um intensus jades um as mine was actually part of um a research methods master's degree that i was doing at the time um and as part of this master's degree we were supposed to pick different modules uh, that were not just related to sort of research methods but also snippets of other master's degrees in psychology that were going on in the department at the time so i picked one on sort of investigating health research or health psychology research and as the assignment for that one we had to write a systematic review and because health research is not something that I do for my own um, sort of research as a as a master's or phd student I wanted to tailor it uh, the systematic review to benefit my plans for the future phd that was going to start Um, and I found it quite difficult because my research didn't have any intervention in it Um, And I didn't want to investigate interventions within my area because that wouldn't really translate very well to what I was going to do in my PhD. Um, So I went to speak to the uh, course leader and I explained to them, I don't know how to use the guidelines that you have listed, um, the steps that are given here to uh, write the systematic review and to critically appraise the studies that I include in my systematic review. They don't really fit what I want to do because there is no intervention, there is no clear manipulation in the way that there is in health research so I'm not quite sure what to do and I was just kind of told to still use this but try and adapt it to make sure that it fits my area um, so I was kind of, <laughs> of treading in the darkness trying to make sure that I stick to the guidelines as, as much as I can but also trying to make sure that I'm hitting all the sort of points that would be relevant for my, for my research area.
1: Yeah it was pretty much the same for me. Um, So uh, my systematic review was um, looking at cognitive differences between people with Parkinson's and people without Parkinson's. So it's got that sort of health element to it but it wasn't it wasn't interventional it was just looking at differences between these two groups uh, particularly on sort of inhibitory control type mechanisms. Uh, I I tried to use the PRISMA guidelines, which are sort of the gold standard. Um, they the guidelines tell you exactly what you should be including to make your review systematic, um, and how you should report it. But it just it just didn't really fit with what I needed to do. So a lot of the guidelines are for these sort of um, clinical trials, you know, RCTs. Um, I think the PRISMA guidelines, well, lots of different guidelines, sort of say your research question should be based on this um, acronym PICO, where P is uh, was it patients, participants, population, I is intervention, C is uh, comparator, and zero am zero O <laughs> uh, is outcomes. But my Research question didn't translate to that at all, so I was sort of stuck at the first hurdle really. Um, And another important aspect of a systematic review is to sort of provide some critical uh, appraisal of the studies you include, but all of the tools that already exist to do that. So you're looking at um, assessing quality and assessing risk of bias but they're all very much centered on these sort of interventional healthcare research studies so they want to know things like um what was there adequate blinding in each arm of a trial which isn't relevant for a lot of studies outside of um these clinical trials and same as MATA, right i sort of, I tried to piece together all the guidelines that I could see um, and adapt them for my own purposes. But I, I feel by by adapting them, I feel like I wasn't really reaching that gold standard anymore. Um, and I tried to adapt one of the um, critical appraisal tools as well, but that just did go very well. Um, and I think one of the things you shouldn't do when you do a systematic review is to make a bespoke tool um, because then you are introducing your own sort of level of bias in a way. Um, so, yeah, I think we both, we both just felt that the guidelines were, weren't hitting at the things that we wanted to uh, review, which I thought was really strange because um, we know that systematic review, so a review with as little bias as possible is the gold standard. And we thought it was very, very strange that there didn't seem to be any guidelines to do that in the sort of work that we wanted to review.
0: That sounds quite quite challenging uh, to actually be able to put together, I guess a reasonable project of any kind without uh, without some kind of framework to work from. Um, so what so what happened next then? So I guess you you met at Cumberland Lodge and then and then what?
2: I think it was over dinner. We were just kind of sitting. And I turned to Jade. I don't know why it ended up that we sat next to each other. I don't think we spoke that much before, maybe a little bit. But I was just like, because Jade asked a question during Dorothy's um, talk at Cumberland Lodge. And I asked and I told her, oh, by the way, I had a similar problem. And I think um, you've had such such an intense experience and maybe like this should be utilized and kind of used for people who are planning to do systematic reviews to warn them about how difficult it is and that there are problems. <laughs> but I kind of like the way that I made it sound was like, oh, you should do something about this so that other people can learn from your experience. And obviously, it would be such a massive thing to do to write guidelines or, or write sort of a piece to say what is wrong with systematic reviews and psychology in general. Obviously, it's not something that one person can um, do alongside the PhD. So we were kind of chatting about what exactly are, the options, what can be done in this situation
1: yeah I I remember I remember you turning to me over dinner and like you say we hadn't actually spoken that much and it was almost sort of like like Marta suggesting that I sort of single-handedly fix the problem and I was a bit sort of I mean (laughs) 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 she obviously has high expectations (laughs) but um I, I kind of was like me <laughs> what are you talking about I'm like the opposite of the sort of person that should be doing this I have no idea what I'm doing um, and we spoke a bit more about it and I was like well why don't you do it too um, yeah. kind of revenge really I suppose for her suggesting that I do it, it was me suggest that she do it uh, and now um, we're all together yeah um, yeah so we kind of um yeah we were we were discussing like what is the issue um because I think we both had a sense that there was an issue but we weren't entirely sure what it was we just knew that we were sort of trying to swim and drowning a little um so we kind of we kind of just I think we spent the rest of dinner just chatting about it didn't we and thinking you know is this something that we could do because we both we both felt that we were just so junior uh, Mm that the idea of us taking on the sort of potential production of some guidelines for systematic reviews for a whole field seemed pretty laughable in a way (laughs) possibly it's just a confidence Mm -hmm. thing but the more we spoke the more we thought well someone's got to do it um and then we, didn't we? We had it, we spoke to Dorothy Bishop the next day about it, about how we were feeling about it, sort of get some insight into what we could do next, didn't we?
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, we kind of, after Cumberland Lodge Workshop, like everybody, I think, left pretty overwhelmed. But I think it picked up again the idea of this project when um, SIPs was about to happen. So. I know just you want to tell more about this because
1: <laughs> you actually went and I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science conference in uh, July in Rotterdam. Um, I can't even remember how how it got to the point of pitching an unconference session on it Um so as Marta said sadly she couldn't come. Um, I think you were waiting weren't you for the waiting list to free up. You were like I'll get on a plane, yeah. I'll get on a plane today if, if you have me. Um, um, but so um, uh, we did an unconference presentation so uh, it's me and Ollie Clark that did that um, and conference. I've been- as well, yeah. Mart- Marta was um, sitting on Skype on my phone at the side of the room to try and include her, um, and we kind of we kind of pitched pitched this idea a bit, saying, "Here, are, here are three UCRs who have really struggled to write a systematic review within psychology, not really looking at interventional research. Perhaps we just have no idea what we're doing." Um, but we thought that really what's missing is a set of guidelines that don't focus at all on the sort of interventional clinical trial research and more appropriate for the sort of things that we might be doing here um so that was sort of one aim was a set of guidelines of how do we do a systematic review in our field and the second thing was um how do we develop a a, way, a systematic way of critically appraising the evidence within the studies that we include in a review? So, um, like I said, the traditional risk of bias tools just don't really work for the sort of research that we're we're trying to synthesise. So we try we pitched the idea of sort of doing both of these things. Um, We had quite an enthusiastic group of people come to the session which was really nice so we're still in touch with a lot of them now um and since uh since sips we've kind of been working on exactly where we want to take this project um it it can be a bit overwhelming for me and marta sort of leading it um i think we constantly feel like imposters uh But it helped. We do have sort of a mix of people involved in the project now. We've got a lot of PhD students. So very, very ECR focused as a group. But we also have some people that are more expert in systematic reviews from slightly different fields as well, which has been really nice. Definitely helps that the people who are collaborating
2: with us in this come from like different areas of psychology as well, because that helps to broaden the focus of those um, guidelines to make sure that we see psychology in general, psychology that is sort of um, not similar to health research where there is, you know, heavy focus on intervention and and things like that, but like different types of psychological research. Everybody can review the guidelines that we're trying to put together and see whether they fit with regards to the research that they would be doing in their area.
0: And was there, so I guess with people coming from other areas, did that... um... Did other people kind of already have maybe some of their own guidelines or guidelines for subject specific areas that kind of helped to fill any of so the this gaps? it wasn't like ecology,
2: though. It was people who are coming with guidelines, I think like the general guidelines that are available for health research, for ecological research, or
1: something. Mm-hmm. Ecology would have been working on this for a while, it looks like. Yeah. So it's good there's to get the range that of perspectives. Sorry, <laughs> so I was just saying it's good. it's good to get the sort of range of perspectives from people. So we, as a group, we were all aware of lots of different guidelines because there are so many guidelines out there already. Um, it's not it's not like there are no guidelines. It's just they're all they, there's a lot of overlap between them. They're all very focused on sorts of studies that we just don't want to review um sort of research questions that we have are so different um, but together we sort of piece together items from different existing guidelines and sort of picked out the best mm-hmm. of them to figure out what it is that we want to focus on
2: and also think about the gap so a lot of the time sort of focusing on the research that is done and the research questions that are asked in other fields they miss a lot of this stuff that is quite relevant to, for instance, cognitive psychology, where there are other sources of bias that could be very important for us to consider when we are taking this, into, when we are sort of looking at a number of studies and, and critically appraising their quality. So um, it's not just kind of piecing together what there is, but also thinking about what is missing and making sure that we make it as specific uh, or other
1: as applicable. To psychology as possible. Yeah and I I mean I think our idea of quality for an individual research study has, has changed over the last few years so the sort of um, quality that was acceptable 10 years ago isn't the same standard that we sort of work to now which I think I think it's actually a really interesting time for us to think about these guidelines because as we say there's sort of two segments to it there's um, preparing a set of guidelines for conducting a systematic review um, so guidelines for how to write a protocol pre-registration and actually writing up the paper but also one of the key things is to you, you can't give equal weighting to every paper that you include in a review you need to weight them somehow based on the quality of them so it's it's been quite good to kind of I think a lot of the guidelines are, are missing some of these uh, benchmarks for quality um, so mm-hmm. even even though pre-registration is a fairly new thing we know that you'd want to give a bit more weighting to something that was pre-registered and reported as pre-registered than something that wasn't so it, it's been really interesting to kind of look at look at studies within the context of this sort of reproducibility revolution, and include that in our in our sort of proposed standard of critical appraisal and evidence synthesis. So I think Marta, Marta had some sort of, she's been thinking a lot about bias generally, and what it is that we're trying to um, cover. I don't know if you want to speak about that a bit more
2: yeah, so um it's not just about the project itself. It's not just about making it easier for people to conduct a systematic review for their area of research. It's actually about making sure that um, we kind of reduce the bias within the literature of a certain area um, as well. So we have identified sort of the three levels of bias that we want to address with the project um, by providing guidelines for the systematic reviews, and that would be, the very sort of uh, top level of the um, reviewers or researchers who are conducting the systematic review and uh, their aims, what they want to take out of this uh, systematic review, what are their beliefs about the effect that they are reviewing, for instance, so trying to protect against that bias. And then the second level would be the general literature bias that is already there. So knowing that studies that were um, significant were more, more likely to be published and um, kind of detecting that publication bias and also within the systematic review, making sure that this is reported and this is taken into consideration. Um, and the very sort of bottom level would include the um, individual studies that are included in the systematic review. So the quality of those studies, as um, Jade mentioned, whether they were pre-registered, whether there's anything uh, that we can spot there that would reduce or increase the weighting that the results from that study should have within the systematic review. So um, it's guidelines to make it easier to write systematic review, but also guidelines to make sure that people produce the best work and have the most objective view of their research area
1: um, possible. I think also one of the things that's important. um, So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, help out there for doing say a meta-analysis which is often part of a systematic review but not always Um, and often when doing a meta-analysis you might you might have some form of estimate of publication bias p-curve analysis or something Um, but i think often what's also missing is a more qualitative uh, synthesis so numbers potentially don't sort of tell the whole story. Um, it's good to have a more qualitative synthesis of the uh, evidence that you're including. And I think um, when you're looking at the quality of each individual study, uh, you could give it a numerical weighting. And I think often that's really helpful, but also just a a way of describing these more just with just with words. Um, I think sometimes that's missing. We really like numbers, but sometimes you don't want to just focus on the numerics, especially in the situation we're in now, where there's so much, so much nuance with research that already exists, and how much can we trust the previous research? Um, I mean, I don't actually, I don't really have an answer. I'm just thinking out loud, really. But I think it is something important Uh, to consider. Definitely. And considering the fact that a lot of areas, um, especially new
2: areas and um, sort of research that is emerging, um, they have a lot of heterogeneity in the way that the research is conducted. So sometimes it's not possible to pull all the numbers together and do a meta analysis. And actually, in order to help that area to progress um, successfully, is do a systematic
1: review yeah i i agree so my systematic review doesn't have a meta-analysis because it is there is just so much heterogeneity that it would be a pointless exercise really trying to trying to fit all of these studies into a quantitative analysis just isn't productive so I've had to go the qualitative route even though I really wanted to do a meta-analysis the data just wasn't appropriate for it because the studies were all so different Um, so yeah it's definitely important to try and get that qualitative analysis going as well.
0: Um, So we'll take a very short break um, and we'll get back to talking about, uh, I guess, bias in systematic review and more questions for Jade and Marta.
3: Welcome back. After our break, I think we had a lot to digest. Uh, I think I've never thought so uh, hard about systematic reviews in my life. Um, But so I think what it sounds like from what Jade and Marta have told us is that we've been working trying to work off guidelines that aren't fit for purpose for the type of psychological research that is is being done in the area and also the times are changing and we should maybe be looking at different forms of for example how we quantify biases how we include different sorts of transparency levels in a systematic review um i think you've done an awful amount of work what I, what i would be interested in in knowing now is you know, where is the project? And also, what what are the key differences between how we've previously done things? And that is normally through PRISMA guidelines, uh, which are were created for the medical and health research field. So what are the, the key differences between the framework that you've established or you're establishing and the one that we're trying to adapt to at the moment and maybe failing to adapt to if we've learned correctly in this podcast?
2: So maybe I'll start to stay sort of where we are at the moment um, and then Jade can pick up. Um, so one of the things that I started doing quite frantically after we started sort of collaborating with people um, following the SIPS conference, I started putting as many um, different adaptable tools as possible to work out the protocol for a systematic review. Um, So we've collected, we were asking lots of people who are collaborating with us, we collected a list of those and we've merged their questions into different um, kind of areas, so to say, or different categories and we have been reducing them and kind of commenting and trying to come up with a tool in the end that will um, cover um, psychological systematic reviews in the end. this is pretty much where we are. We have like um, a first draft of the tool that we would be willing to uh, get some feedback on and trial soon. Uh, But this is just for the sort of protocol and what we want to make different from uh, the kind of tools that are available at the moment would be to guide people to write a protocol that can be pre-registered for a systematic review with this. And we um, outline the bits that, have to be specified before you start um, your systematic review, uh, before you start extracting your papers and um, going through the papers that you want to include, and then things to do when um, when you're actually analysing the data and, and extracting all the
1: information that you need for it. Um, yeah, I think one thing that we haven't actually covered here yet is um, what makes a systematic review different from a non-systematic review, which is... Um, a lot of it is in the way that you look for papers, the way that you set up your search. Um, so one of the first things you need is a research question, like all good studies. Um, and I think one of the big differences between the guidelines that already exist um, and what we want to do is that the current standard for a good research question for a systematic review doesn't work. I mean, I mentioned PICO earlier. Um, if you're not doing, if you're not reviewing interventional research mm-hmm. or clinical trials, then it doesn't work. Um, and that's the first hurdle. If your research question isn't appropriate for a systematic review, then your systematic review won't be appropriate for what you want to do. And that's where I tripped up. I tripped up at the first hurdle. Um, because I was trying to think what I needed in my research question. Um, and I don't think I did it very well, which then impacted on the way I did my search. So in a systematic review, you're you um, sort of come up with a list of search terms, you try it out, you keep searching, make sure that you've got papers that you expected to see in your search results. And um, make sure that you don't have too many relevant papers and sort of really hone down uh, a set of search terms. But if your research question isn't appropriate, you will struggle there, I think. Um, So I think that is one of the important things is how to develop your research question. Um, And I think, yeah, the other really important difference is the risk of bias and quality assessment part of a systematic review it's a it's a key part of a systematic review but I really struggle to do that personally and that's one of the things we want to work on so that will be sort of a a, a mini tool within a bigger tool really
0: that's really cool um and I, I guess one thing that I really like about um this and I guess a lot of other kind of similar projects is that you're kind of creating a tool for people to use um so I guess for the for the next stages are you looking for people to try and use it in kind of immediately or are you looking for feedback from kind of other systematic reviewers um where do you kind of see things going next
1: I think we were we are looking for so the next stage will be to see if our first draft of this tool is appropriate. I, I think it will undergo many revisions until we're happy with it but we'll be getting um, both people who are more expert at writing systematic reviews to make sure that um, it includes everything it needs to, it doesn't include anything it doesn't need to and that it's as sort of accessible as possible. But also people that have never written a systematic review or have, like us, have tried and found it a real struggle. We want people like that to have a look at the tool as well and see if, you know, it's something that they can follow. And we'll also be having a look at systematic reviews that have already been conducted um, and look at it against our tool and figure out whether the quality of the existing systematic reviews would be improved by... Our tool. We're sort of in the stages now of figuring out exactly how we want to pilot it. Um, that's sort of the next big thing for us to work on.
0: That's cool. Um, I, I'm kind of curious. You, you mentioned a couple of times about the the different kind of bias at sort of different levels of the systematic review. Um, are there are there any kind of particular that you feel that your your tool is kind of looking to? Uh, Address, I guess, as opposed to the tools that are already out there.
2: Um, I think that because the other tools are not suitable for research in psychology, that in itself um, kind of gives space for bias um, to happen. So, because researchers have so much, so so many decisions to do, and so much flexibility around this to make it fit their aims with regards to those um, the, the guidelines and the tools that are available, that in itself makes the reviews unsystematic, if that makes sense. Um, and it's up to the, up to the researchers themselves to, to make a point of call and their decisions might either be good or they might be biased, so to say. So we are trying to create something that can be systematic and followed Um, And make sure that this bias for those researchers who are designing the systematic review, that this is avoided. Um, So by following a set protocol, giving them step by step what decisions need to be made before they start uh, retrieving the papers that they will include in the systematic review, what needs to be pre-registered, what needs to be decided. A lot of the time, this isn't clear in um, PRISMA guidelines, for instance, um, because they do kind of say you need a protocol but it's a different thing if you know that it will be pre-registered and it will be time-stamped, and you have to um, stick to what you have decided in the first place.
1: Yeah I think that um, a lot of so the tools already exist there is largely not much wrong with them for the fields that they are created for so they are really good at what they do Um, but it's a case of tailoring it to our field i think that's the issue so the tools are really useful they do do what they're designed to do if they're followed properly but it's when you start adapting it and um, for your own field that your own sort of um levels of bias can creep in and we're often not aware of it so there were several times when I was doing my own systematic review where I had to make decisions and then a few weeks later I'd look back and I think I could have made that decision completely differently and I wonder if I have contributed my own bias Um, so I'm always second guessing myself and I feel more comfortable if I was following something that would sort of do that for me so I didn't have to think so much about you know, like it's hard to reflect
2: on your own bias. There's also
1: that. Um, different guidelines
2: of are uh, complete in different ways as well. So we, by going through the guidelines, we saw, for instance, some of them were suggesting to do um, the um, kind of analysis of um, of bias within the literature. Um, so they were, for instance, suggesting doing funnel plots, and that was, I think just one of the guidelines that we saw um and we think that all of the guidelines should have that so we are kind of by merging them all together we are making sure that all the best practices are pulled together and um sort of the different levels of bias are covered so starting with the sort of the researcher bias through the publication bias and then making sure that in the end uh, we will also develop that additional tool that will help to appraise the um the quality of of the studies that are included. So altogether it should be in the end like a nice set that will take people step by step um, in completing a nice systematic review that will protect them from bias at different levels. Um, Yeah, I think it, it is different to what is already available there and it is specific to psychology.
3: So what do you think that you've learned in the process? So I think at the beginning of the recording, you often said that, you know, at at the dinner, talking about possibly putting up guidelines for systematic reviews, you felt like imposters and that you as ECRs um, weren't, I guess, ready or informed or, you know, old or professional or whatever you wanted to say enough to um, embark on such a project, so kind of now that you're in the midst of it, you know you've got the mud on your boots. Um, what, what's, how would you reflect on the experience uh, up till now? I mean, I still
1: feel like an imposter. I'm still waiting for someone to come along and say, "Hang on a second, this this thing you're trying to do here has already been done. How have you not seen it?" Um, but I mean, in all seriousness, we i think we have sort of come to the realization that being junior doesn't mean that we can't contribute something worthwhile um many many more senior people don't know how to write a systematic review um and i don't know i i think we've learned that we don't need to wait until we're you know Uh, some higher level for the or for the imposter syndrome to sort of magically disappear if if we see something that we think needs to be done then why not us we're the ones that we we struggled and we didn't like struggling so if we can attempt to make this process easier for people in the future why not us and we 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 have discussed it with experts as well to try and sort of just to make sure that you know, we hadn't just conjured up a problem that doesn't exist and they've kind of validated uh, the way we feel about it. They've, they've kind of confirmed that the thing we're trying to do here doesn't exist. Um, it kind of also, uh, from like a
2: personal point of view, I don't want to just sound weird, but I kind of get worried about people who are going to embark on a systematic review journey in the research features in psychology and they will not spot those problems. Um, and they will be just so busy, desperate to get it over and done with, and they will just complete something that essentially will probably not be a waste of their time, but it will not be to the standard that they would have normally done if they had the correct guidance for it. Um, and as a person who is involved in uh, reproducibility and, and open science and who is trying to um, make the research world better, I feel like this is something that I can contribute because I have this experience and I have spotted those difficulties um so if I can if my ideas are not rejected um then I'm hoping that this will help to change things for better
1: yeah yeah I agree I think um so I think there's a there's a lot of good work going on um sort of in light of the reproducibility crisis, at uh, making sure that individual research studies are robust, pre-registered, that people are reporting everything they did exactly as they did it. Um, and that's great. Um, and making sure that papers are published, even if they have uh, negative results. But I think if we're not addressing the fact that the synthesis of this evidence currently isn't up to scratch, then eventually all that hard work will go to waste and papers will get good papers will get lost citation biases will creep in um, and systematic review is the best way of making sure that those robust pieces of work are getting the attention and waiting that they deserve and not sort of you know being cited a lot because some big name has decided that they're important Um, uh, yeah, I think it's a really important issue
3: to address. Yeah, this is super inspirational (laughs) stuff, guys. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you, thank you a lot for sharing. And I think we often don't share a lot about our vulnerabilities and kind of questioning about, you know, what is what we're doing right? Is this the right timing? And it's really great to hear you guys say, you know, if there's a problem and you realize it's there, you know, you're the person who can solve it because you have that experience of being exposed to it. And often, you know, as the people on the ground, we, we are exposed to certain things day in, day out. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, really great stuff. Um, I, I guess we, we're heading very uh, quickly to the end of the podcast, um, but we normally ask our guests about what they, what would their advice be to, ecrs uh naturally you are ecrs and we just talked about imposter syndrome um but is there anything else maybe that you'd wished you would have known um maybe a year ago or or when you started your phd um that that you've learned now
1: i think the one piece of advice i would probably have is to i I think i think without the sort of ECR community support which when we started this project back at Cumberland Lodge we were surrounded by the best of that support um i think staying within those communities makes you feel like you really can do something worthwhile um so reproducibility is a really good example of that um you're surrounded by people who want to make a difference and you kind of you kind of have to lean each other lean on each other to sort of convince yourself that you can do that so you know I, I said at the beginning about how Marta kind of just suggested oh, I, I I do something to fix this and I thought <gasps> no not me um it did you know I think I, it is difficult to believe that you can be the one to do this and it's quite scary to open yourself up to it when you feel like you're not the expert but Chances are, I think, that other people aren't necessarily the expert either. So you may as well work to become the expert in order to make it easier people in the future. But I do think that sticking with a good ECR community is the key to sort of making you feel like imposter or not. We can at least give it a shot. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. I'm just
2: kind of thinking to myself every time that I'm so grateful um, that me and Jake can work together with all the collaborators that we have and I don't ever feel like the project is the sole responsibility for seeing it through is on me, it's it's teamwork and it's different to um, the PhD that I'm doing and I've told Jake before we were super busy um, trying to do things and stressful things for our PhDs and trying to survive and to be honest within our timetables we didn't have the time to schedule um for both of us to work on the systematic review project but we made the time and we both of us felt that this is a good strategy to take us out into something that is motivating something that to us it feels like we are working towards making a difference so um it's good to get involved in things like that and um it makes you feel better so there are moments of imposter syndrome but there's, there's there's also moments where you feel like i'm actually doing something worthwhile um and we are reaching steps to achieve the goals that we have set ourselves
1: yeah i mean phd is quite quite an isolating thing to do because you often feel like you're trying to do everything single-handedly and even though I really love my PhD project and I get a lot out of it. Sometimes I'm so stuck inside of my PhD that it is really good to have these moments where I sort of take a step back and look at sort of more good I can do generally. And, you know, me and Marta, we've, um, we've, we've met up in person um, for many many hours uh, in Birmingham in a cafe in McDonald's trying to get this project (laughs) on the go and we've also just sat on skype for an entire day together working on this and it's just it's such a nice thing to do I think and it's so it's completely self-motivated there are no expectations from anyone which is just really nice it's just sort of us working for the greater good that we want to see.
0: That's, that's awesome. That might be two of the most heartwarming advice you would give to ECRs that I think we've ever had on this. Thank you both. Um, so I guess uh, in the interest of time, uh, that's all we have time for. Um, thank you both so much for for joining us and kind of sharing this project. I think it sounds like something that is going to sort of really give uh, not only a tool but kind of a lot more sort of power almost to, to do systematic reviews and um, especially considering most PhDs get the advice at the very start to do a systematic review. Um, So it's really good of you both to be providing that kind of a tool. Um, So thank you both for joining us. Um, To the listeners, if you have any suggestions for any other awesome early career researchers that you'd like to hear from or other awesome early career researcher-led projects that you think we should highlight and talk about, um, you'd like to give some airtime to, hit us up. The uh, DMs are open. We're on Twitter. We're on whoop, SoundCloud whoop. and various other whoop, places. Whoop. Google it. You'll find us.
3: Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Fire
0: Amy lots and lots of emails to start your own journal club.
3: <laughs> no, uh, yes, yeah. Not too many emails. though. So. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, hit us up. Uh, and have a good rest of your day (laughs)
0: have a good one
3: (laughs) am I doing a late ending (laughs) stab should do that bye (laughs) goodbye